pasado por su casa, que ha venido porque quiere ser feliz. Good morning. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. It's a beautiful day here today, snowy and cold. Uh, I hope some of you are in uh, Florida where it's a little warmer and where our guest is today, by the way. And uh, we are uh, have a very special guest for you today, uh, world language celebrity of celebrities. And he's going to be talking to you in a little bit about something of high interest. Um, first of all, I would like to thank um, the radio uh, UCCS, uh, the University of Colorado Springs, the online radio station. Congratulate them for some awards they earned last year. Uh, as one of the best online radio stations at the college level. And also to thank the faculty there, the sponsors of the program, the various academic departments, and a special thanks to Marge Mystery, who's no longer is with us, for all the work she did there on the radio station. And also a special thanks to uh, uh, Kyle, the station manager, for all his help. Uh, thank you, Kyle. And thank you to the listeners for listening to us and being here today. And uh, we have a great program for you. Without saying any more, I want to tell you a little bit about our, our um, guest today. And his name is John D'Amato. He's a seminar presenter, conference presenter, keynote speaker, author of textbooks, articles. Uh, and uh, he's done pretty much everything you can imagine in, in his uh, career in world language. And he continues to do a tremendous amount to help this profession. Um, so we would like to, to introduce John to you, and uh, John uh, is fortunate today. He is in a little warmer climate, uh, although it's pretty cool, he said, in Florida also. Uh, hi, hello, John. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being on the show. Um, I know uh, the, the audience would be interested in knowing a little bit about uh, what you do today and what you've been doing over your career in world language education. Maybe first, too, to mention your family, a little bit about your family, and then tell us yeah. about what you've been doing, okay? Okay, well, um, well, first of all, uh, we uh, you're in contact with me in southwestern Florida, Marco Island. Uh, this is where I spend part of the year. The other part of the year is spent up in uh, the great state of Maine. Um, I live on an island up there as well, so Tom, I don't know what that says about me, but uh, somehow I ended up on two <laughs> and um, I am um, I am married, and I have uh, three wonderful sons and uh, two grandsons, and so uh, everything is is in order and fine on that end. Uh, it's it's a treat to watch the world grow and develop and and go on and be successful. Um, with regard to myself, I uh, I studied to be a language teacher and was in fact a middle school, high school, primarily middle school, high school French and Spanish teacher. In the course of my career, I've had a chance to actually teach from kindergarten through university. Um, I've been involved in the uh, educational publishing world, and as you mentioned, I I published middle school, high school, French materials, middle school, high school, I mean written, not published, the publisher publishes. I'm just the humble scribe. Uh, middle school, high school, Spanish uh, materials, elementary Spanish materials, middle school, high school, uh, ELL materials. To be honest with you, um, I 
and filled to the brim with language and trying to heighten its profile in this country. And you had mentioned the fact that I've done a lot of different things, and I have. I'll do just about anything within legal and moral limits to try to expand the understanding of what it means to function in other languages. Besides the publishing end, I do a great deal of public speaking on language acquisition primarily. I fancy myself an applied linguist. And so I travel the nation and abroad in the name of language acquisition. I've even written songs, rap songs in French and Spanish to try to get kids, help kids to acquire those languages. And for the listeners, those were outstanding raps, and they're still available, by the way. And we'll talk about that in a minute. If you'd like some of John's materials, we'll put a plug in for that at the end of the broadcast so you can write it down if you have a pencil or something. Be ready. Okay. John, can you tell everybody where you're going to be soon in Maryland? Well, depending on Mother Nature, I'm scheduled to be in Wicomico County, Maryland, which is Salisbury, Ocean City, Maryland. And interesting assignment, and this is kind of the way things have morphed for me. I've been invited in by the county to speak to everyone from the superintendent through all the administration and all the teachers from 12th grade through kindergarten on language acquisition and how it impacts literacy, which is really what our topic is going to be about today. It's the notion that language is at the base of literacy. It's the river that floats the wisdom of the ages. No language, no literacy. And so essentially I'm taking whatever knowledge I have that's born of my language teaching experience, my speaking, my knowledge of applied linguistics. I am bringing it into the arena of the content area specialists to see if we cannot improve the literacy record in this nation. I do know that this title, I really love the title of this article you've written, The Language Rich Schoolhouse, The Foundation for Literacy. And it starts off the article with the National Reading Panel has identified five components critical to the development of the reading and literacy process. John, could you kind of amplify that for the listeners? Well, without going into a whole lot of detailed information, basically what I'm trying to apply, I mean, we've all, in our language classrooms, we all teach sound symbol. Okay, so neither a symbol, sonny symbol, whatever you want to call it, we teach how the spoken sound aligns with the written symbol. I think we've all had the experience with kids in our classroom when you ask them to get up to read or sit down to read or just read out loud to you. They might sound actually pretty good because we've done a good job teaching the decoding process. But then we ask the eventual question, what does this mean? And they don't know. And so the thing that I'm so interested in is the comprehension piece of 
what is it that kids actually comprehend? Uh, because when we ask when we ask children to demonstrate literacy, it's largely through what they understand, not whether they can just read something about something, but what have you actually deciphered from what you've read. And so, to me, that is a matter of vocabulary. And um, I've been, I've been. Uh, there are certain people I've been gravitating to with regard to the research they've done. Number one, obviously, is, is Stephen Krashen from University of Southern California. Uh, another, another pair are out of the University of Iowa. That's Jerry Zimmerman and, and Carolyn Brown. And uh, most recently, a doctor, a medical doctor by the name of uh, Dana Suscott. Uh, and all of these people are linking language acquisition with eventual literacy. I guess my, my premise is, Tom, we were kind of chatting before the show, is the fact that, generally speaking, when we see that children are deficient in areas like math or science, all right, what, what we do is we do more math and science with them. Uh, in other words, we never stop and consider the fact that this may in fact be a language issue, that maybe the children don't actually understand, not so much the concept per se, but they don't have the language to actually understand the concept. And believe me when I say this to you, I'm not just talking about limited English proficient kids, in other words, kids that may be coming here from other countries. I'm talking about now a generation of children that I refer to as RLA, or Restricted Language Ability. These are children that are born here in the United States, but let's put it this way, the language that they use, which may very much be in the informal register most of the time, is not the language of the textbooks, and it's not the language of the classrooms. Therefore, there is, uh, there is a dissonance between what we are expecting the kids to do and their ability to comprehend it. And that's what I'm so, I, I, I'm more and more focused on this. And so, the, reason why, yeah. the, the reason why, Tom, is this. I think for world language to be more respected in the schoolhouse, more respected than it is, and I question that sometimes. I think, I think world language teachers and world language courses tend to get short shrift when it comes to the political agenda of most school districts. We have got to be able to articulate not just the fact that world language is important for all the reasons that we know, all right? The fact that it's, it's important to speak another language, it's important to understand other cultures, etc. What administrators are concerned about is how the school is scoring, what the literacy rate is in the school. And I think we need to be able to make a case about language and language acquisition, which is what we know about. We know about that as language teachers. How can we provide that information to content area teachers who are not necessarily focused on language acquisition, they're focused on the transmission of the content? So what would you suggest? That how would we do that? I mean, as a practical thing, what could we do? Well, um, how could we? Yeah. Go ahead. So, number one is, first of all, the schools have to have language, world language programs, right? Right. Which we hope they do. Some of them don't, right? Uh, but right. a lot of them do. So, how could you communicate 
this information from the language department, let's say, to to English, the, the English department, or ESL, let's say, or history, or what is social studies, right? Well, I mean, basically, people in ESL and world language teachers, uh, by and large, I mean, let's, again, what, we're, what we are charged with is transmitting another language. So we know how to create language where it doesn't exist, okay? The content area teachers predicate everything they do on the fact that children are coming with ample language to be able to understand their content. I'm trying to make the case that uh, this may be exactly where the literacy crisis is coming in. We have not only li limited English proficient kids that have their own set of needs because they, they speak another language, they don't speak English, and quote unquote, the general content area teacher does not really know how to approach them in a way that helps them to understand the English language. And then we have children that uh, in and of themselves don't, you know, tend to use the English language in an ample fashion. Let me, let me try to do this, Tom. Let me try to identify what I think the causes are, and then maybe what I can do is provide you what I think is a solution. Is that okay? Fine. Okay. I see that I think we're dealing with a, a three-headed hydra here as far as what the problem is. All right? It's sociological, it's technological, and it's educational. All right? If, if, if there are linguistic problems in our nation, I'm talking specifically right now about children who are born here with restricted language ability in English, not LEP, all right? Not limited English proficiency. Sociologically, um, I'm not quite convinced that our nation really cares about language in general. I'm not just talking about world languages, I'm talking about any language. I'm reminded of this every time I listen to the Brits. When, when, you, have a, when you have a Brit speaking English, uh, it's, 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 it's a pleasure to listen to by and large because there is some construction, and some thought, and some choosing and picking of words. Generally speaking, in our environment today, we tend to spit, spit out sound bites you might say, and just get the message out as briefly as possible, possible. And if you say something wrong, you apologize later. <laughs> so, uh, it, 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 the, one of the things, it, what's going on as it relates to children is that we don't have any formal times and scenes anymore where we actually gather and discuss, okay? There was a time, let me, let's take a look at our society, sociologically now. We have a lot of one-family households, all right? That one person normally is out working. When that person comes home, that person is tired. There may not be a meal prepared that evening. The kids are, are uh, you know, maybe latchkey kids. Uh, and so, therefore, there's no dinner discussion. Same thing with, like most families, two, people's, two people working with all kinds of strange schedules just to get by. And the kids tend to be over-programmed, too. I mean, after school, there's ballet, there's sports, there's, there's uh, karate, there's, I mean, you name it, and then homework, and then it's time for bed. So you got that set. Um, I would also say sociologically, we don't make space for discussion. I'll give you an example, Tom, you're well-traveled. Uh, you know, you're hard-pressed in, in countries around the world, and I don't care what the climate is. Every country has a cafe life. Every country has a cafe life. Mm -hmm. and why do people go to cafes, Tom? They don't go primarily to eat. To socialize. They, go, they, they socialize, to discuss, right, to touch, to interact, etc. 
Okay? To, to be with have, other people. Yeah. You can have one cafe espresso and sit at that table for three hours and you'll never be bothered by the server. All right? What do we have in our culture that parallels that? What do you think? <laughs> I can't think of anything. I, the, I suppose the people that go to Starbucks maybe and chat a little bit or whatever, but that's about it. One of my favorite Spanish words is basura, which is the word for garbage. Yes. <laughs> now, let me just say this. No one talks in Starbucks. No. Anyone that goes to Starbucks that's knows it. that. Everybody, it's a cyber cafe. Yes, it's cyber cafe it's, with, co with it's, coffee. That's it, yeah. As we say in French, tout le monde est en train de taper à la machine. Yes. Right? Everybody's yes. inputting stuff on their computers. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks. As a matter of fact, the, the barista doesn't even want to talk to you. No, because, no, no, no. Because if you're stupid enough to spend $7 on a cup of coffee, then the fact is he probably can't learn anything from people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so, but but it is true in the, what you're saying about the the society technology in education, and uh, I I can see a parallel in world language classes that what we do is we try to create situations where the students are speaking and using language, right? And right. where we're doing that, if I went to a social studies class or science class, that may not ever happen, right? In other right. words, they assume all of these things that the kids, you know, maybe let's say social studies class could do a, a situation about uh, some, some famous figure, you know, George Washington or somebody talking with some famous military person or, you know, historical people. And they could create situations which it would be, you know, using language, but in a fun way, right, where the kids could cr contribute their own language, right? Right. And I think that that's one of the things I like about what you're saying, and that is that everybody has their own language, right? I mean, even in English, you know, our native language. And we cannot assume, as you say in the article, that kids are speaking. You know, we can't assume that because they aren't, right, and most of the time. They're either, as you said, they're entering data, they're, they're on their phones, they're in the video games, and or, or even in the classroom many times. Uh, I, I don't think the social studies teachers, math teachers, science teachers, for example, English teachers, go to the detail that like we as language teachers do to get kids to participate maybe and talk. Right. Because our goal is, is language production. We want the kids to express themselves. And exactly. is that, am I on the right track now? A little well, bit? you are. I mean, again, that's one piece. In other words, we don't have, right. the general premise is this, is that the general attitude toward language in the United States is, I just don't think we respect language in general. Okay? That, that's the basic premise. I just don't think we really care. And as a matter of fact, if you look, we are all the things that are potentially capable of developing language in the mm -hmm. curriculum, we are in the midst of withdrawing from the curriculum. Uh, drama, a lot of schools are getting rid of that. Debate, if they ever had it, they're getting rid of it. Vocal and instrumental music, all signs of language ability being removed. World language courses being atrophied. Uh, basically, the 800-pound gorilla, as we all know, is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are school districts that are moving that way. And as a matter of fact, without mentioning any names, there are school districts that are actually getting rid of their world language teaching faculties in favor of a computerized program 
that promises you that you can speak like an American diplomat in another language, which may be true because many of them are monolingual. But uh, so what I'm saying is that sociologically, we're not quite there. We don't care about language in general. Technologically, and here's another impact. Um, it's not technology that's bad. It's how the technology is consumed. And my premise to you, Tom, and to your listeners is the fact that kids use technology to isolate themselves. In other words, the minute, for example, earbuds go in, that speaks volumes to me. That means I want to be left alone. If you ask, if you ask the average adolescent, you have a cell phone, why are you texting? They will tell you that I don't want to get in an extended conversation. Okay? And so in the end result, what we find is that the, the technologies that kids consume the most, be it on, on, on computers, whether it's cell phones, um, whatever it might be, they are basically designed not to amplify language, but to restrict language. Twitter, 140 characters. I can't even say hello in 140 characters. I mean, you can already tell. I got plenty to say about a lot of different things. 140 characters just isn't adequate, right? Then you come the, the third part of this of this three-headed monster that's devolving language. That said, sociological, technological, educational. This is the only place where your listeners, colleagues, my colleagues, your colleagues, have some real impact. It's, it's, it's with the, with the, the imposition of high stakes testing, um, in the American school systems, our schoolhouses have fallen to silence. Because we, we need simply what we're doing is, uh, look, we've got to pass these tests for the schools to get a good rating, for teachers to be, you know, to, to prove that they're teaching. Really what's going on is that it's, it's cut any dialogue in the schools way back. Literally, uh, the way I kind of feel is here's where we are. We're not really educating. We're, we're creating the illusion of education. I tell you what to think, all right? You do not think about this. You just simply give me back the information I gave you to prove to me that you know what I told you. Don't synthesize it. Don't have an opposing opinion. Don't discuss it. Don't do anything. Just give it back to me. This is not education. No. This is the illusion of education. So when you take, Tom, when you take up the sociological impact, the technological impact, the, 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 uh, the educational impact on language, our kids are spending the day in silence. It doesn't mean they're making, not making noise, because they are. But the language they're using, dude, is in the informal register. And that's not the register of the classroom. Well, and it's not the, the register right. of the textbooks. But but what's happened too is we've gotten into this. Uh, uh, I call it risk taking, somewhat, where the teachers need to risk take, you know, whatever the discipline is. And with to getting back to the vocabulary, and I really enjoyed your thoughts about vocabulary acquisition and what people really acquire and how they do it. And we'll talk yeah. about that in a minute. But, <clears throat> but when we think about uh, 
risk taking. And uh, I know some teachers I talk to, and, and these are world language teachers, they'll say, boy, I can't do any small group work anymore. Uh, the discipline just is too tough, you know, when we, we don't do small groups. Our, our, the speaking parts of things, we can't do as much as we used to. And I think that's something we have to really work at teaching. It's creating this environment, this learning environment, where what you say is totally correct. We want the students to speak with each other and exchange ideas, communicate in, in a real meaningful sense, not on a computer. Uh, you, if you just click to oblivion every day on a computer or you just look at it and day after day, we are going to have a bunch of robots on our hands, right? I mean, people yeah. who will not be able to communicate with each other. And as you said, it affects testing tremendously too, because if the vocab that uh, we're using doesn't reach the students or they, they aren't interchanging their vocab with other students and trying to figure things out, it doesn't have a very good result with testing either, you know, the, the testing right. situation. And as you said, we've gotten into the the, the point in our schools where creativity is diminishing, you know, that, that the testing is taken over the testing results and teaching for tests. And we've forgotten about the creative factor in this whole thing. And, right. uh, uh, so yeah, that's uh, the, the vocab, uh, issue too, that when you bring that up here in the article is very interesting about what vocab the students really use and remember, right? Right. Could you comment on that a little bit? Because I sure. thought that was a really nice piece, how you did the vocab thing here about students read something, they don't understand it, we think they do, right? Or they'll say they do, but they really don't, and the vocab comes in. Though. Where, right. do, where do they pick up their vocab, John? Do yeah. they well, do they pick it up reading? Not necessarily, right? Well, uh, needless to say... Uh, Clearly, you can pick up vocabulary through reading, all right? Uh, my observation, though, is that, uh, in other words, the broader question is, do people become literate by reading? Sure, particularly if you're already literate. But to me, the note, and this is typically an English language arts point of view, all right? Now, let, let's just talk about this for a second, if I may. My colleagues that are English language arts teachers, okay, um, English language arts is an ex post facto phenomenon. In other words, the, 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 real, the real purpose for English language arts is refinement of language. So the premise is someone comes already functioning in, a second, in, in that English language, and it's the job of the English language arts teacher to refine that language, okay? The difficulty they're finding, I've spoken to many, many ELAT, English language arts teachers around the nation, they concur with this, so see what you think. They don't know how to build language in people. They know how to refine language in people, right? But if the language isn't there, if you can imagine now an English language arts teacher with children coming from our, they speak English, but the English is not adequate, for them to actually do the things, to, to read the articles, to read the, story, the short stories, to write, you know, uh, something about it. They're stuck. 
They don't know what to do because it's not part of their training. Now, can I, I'm going to ask a quick question. So when you say the students, what, what type of students are we talking? Are we talking about students from poor families? Uh, are we talking about Latinos? No, we're talking about the average. I am not, I'm not breaking this down by no. gender, race, or, or uh, gender or race whatsoever, but, or, or uh, length. I'm but, talking about kids born in the United. This this knows no limits. Okay. This can be this can be as as prevalent uh, in Bedford Stuyvesant as it is in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Affluent communities, blue collar communities, right, poor right. communities. The issue is language, and and all across the board, it's being impacted sociologically, technologically, and educationally. Now, is this is this impact? Could be in in social studies class, same thing. I mean, everything, they're just, everything. whatever the discipline is, it doesn't matter because they're all in the same boat. I mean, where how do how do the students use this vocab? What do you do with these kids, right? The reason I mention English language arts teachers mm -hmm. is because I want to juxtapose them to what we do. Mm -hmm. Okay, we we know how to world language people, ESL people right. know how to build language where it does not as of yet exist. Right. English arts language arts teachers don't know how to do that because it's not part of their training. They refine language. This spills into social studies, mm -hmm. science. Right. Mathematics, because all of those content areas have vocabulary that is primordial to understand it. Right. Okay. So here's here's where I want to I want to talk a little bit how how we can get kids to acquire vocabulary. Okay. Um, I I have a, a I wanted to give an example of this. I have a very good friend who uh, was a a history teacher. Right, and he would teach children how to write a thesis statement, and then he would expect from them to to write a thesis. Right now, this is not unusual in history classes. What was unusual is what he did. Most teachers, what they'll do is ask children write a thesis, send it in to me, I will grade it, I hand it back to you, and the kids put it in the circular file. Okay. This is what my friend did. So really all that is then, what, we, what I just described, is a reading, it's, 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 it's a, a reading, writing activity. Right, right. No listening or speaking involved, which right. we know is critical, right, the language acquisition. And so what we find, what we find is that what, what this person would do is he would have the, the kids write the thesis. Then he would publish each one of the theses, all right? and redistribute everyone's thesis to everyone else in the classroom. And on a given day, a student was required to stand up and defend his or her thesis in front of his or her peers. Mm -hmm. Conversely, the peers in the audience were, were required to have 10 or a dozen questions prepared, all right? Now, what happens is that the person presenting, because they have written this thesis, had words that are academic words from the books that they read, mm -hmm. are now forced to jumpstart those vocabulary words because they have to use them. In other words, we only, we only acquire language that we need. We do not acquire words that we don't need. 
And what drives the need is situation, problem solving. Problem solving, problem solving, problem solving. You either use language as a problem solving device or it becomes the problem. Which is world language teachers we do quite often, right? Situations, right. Uh, real life things, uh, and problem solutions. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, and then what he would do is he would have, and then the people that were actually sitting back asking the questions also have to borrow the vocabulary words from the thesis that they've read, which they have to write 10 or 12 questions. All of a sudden now, these words come off the paper, okay, and they are being used in a real-world situation, all right? That's where people start to acquire vocabulary and acquire literacy. And, and that becomes risk-taking. It's a little risk-taking, you know? It's, hey, we got to have these students do these things, and it's, right. you know, we're turning the thing around, the students, it becomes a student-centered class, right? And a exactly. lot of things that we do in world language study, and it's... It, totally agree you know that uh, and uh, even with world language teachers it's it's sometimes hard to to demotivate those folks you know to to do what we're talking about risk taking you know student centered classroom you know where there's they're, they're talking to each other they're able to do those type things uh, and talking again what you said and now do you find there's a huge correlation uh, with this uh, spoken word that uh, when kids are talking to each other, that they they enlarge their vocab. I I I, I think given given the choice of kids talking to kids, they will always remain in kid speak. They'll always remain in the informal register. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are you, you mean in the second language or first language? Uh, first language. All right, first language. They'll always stay in because language primarily. Here's here's the deal. Primarily, language identifies you as a member of the group. Mm -hmm. Now, Tom, you and I have been around the block a couple of times, correct? Yes. I'm at this point. I don't call you dude, do I? No. You don't call me dude either. No. You know why, Tom? Right. We're too old to use those words. <laughs> That's not our group, is right. it? No, it's sir. sir. Yes, sir. sir. Or honey, honey. Yeah. Honey, hey, honey. Right? Or dear. <laughs> I think it's very important. I think it's very important to note that one of the primary functions of language is to identify you as a member of a group. And so, when you, given the nature of that, when kids when kids speak to one another, they're going to use language that identifies them as a member of a group. So the question at hand is how do you how do you get kids to acquire uh, vocabulary? Because vocabulary is at the base of right. literacy. Now, what, and would I want you, what would you suggest for that? Well, first of all, I want to credit uh, this in part not only from you know the Stephen Crashen, but also I wanted before I had mentioned uh, Jerry Zimmerman and and, uh, and 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 Carolyn Brown from the University of Iowa, and then some thinking most recently from Dana Suscon, who uh, uh, actually has established uh, the Comer Children's Hospital, um, University of Chicago. Yeah. Um, Stephen Krashen tells us that at the base of all language is something called comprehensible input. Okay? Um, and what comprehensible input, literally, uh, most of our colleagues know about this, is as it relates to the classroom teacher, doing everything you can within legal and moral limits to try to make yourself understood. Now, we as language teachers use music, 
We use facial expressions, body language, hand gestures. We dance, we sing, we cook food, we make faces. You know, whatever it takes to make sure. I mean, this is what uh, John Rossius was all about this. God bless his soul. John Rossius was all about this, being histrionic to get his message across. Okay? Okay. I want to stop you real quick, just one second, because you mentioned Rossius. and I wanted to say you're exactly on the money with that because it was uh, uh, it was what you could do to make people understand. And I remember when I did this methodology once, and it was quite effective. And it was at uh, an evening classes I was teaching at uh, University of Minneapolis a long time ago, and uh, we would throw cream pies at people. You know that was yeah. part of the deal. And when I, I bring a water bottle in to spray people with this water bottle if they yeah. talked English, if they talked English. And, yeah. and the, kid, the kids loved it. I mean, it was just down, you know, and, and again, it's this idea of what you said, and I want to mention it to the listeners and, and amplify on it because uh, uh, it's so important that we do uh, everything possible to be compre- understood. And, that, and as you said, that was the comprehensible input thing. Uh, which, Absolutely. Yeah. And what they find, what they find is that the more, the more comprehensible input that a teacher uses to try to get the message across, the more the learner or the language acquirer will seek comprehensible input. Okay? So it's, it's a two-way street. It's not just providing comprehensible input. What's important is the fact that it encourages the seeking of comprehensible Yes, exactly. Okay, now that's an important piece. Now, now when when you have input and output of language, this is commonly known as this is commonly known as conversation. Matter of fact, I think in this political age, I could probably say that the only people I know on the face of the earth that will speak when they don't understand, we tend to elect. So, having said that. (laughs) <laughs> for general consumption, most people do not open their mouths until they understand, or they will try to seek clarification. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this comes. This is this is from Stephen Krasher. This notion of comprehensible input. Right. The reason comprehensible input is important is because it leads to output of language. Mm-hmm. Comprehensible input and output of language is known as conversation. Brown, Zimmerman and Brown hypothesize, and I believe this, that most of the vocabulary that we own comes not from reading. It comes from our conversations. It comes from our broad and deep conversations. And so in order to develop vocabulary, varied vocabulary, you have to have varied conversations not just conversations between, you know, young people talking to young people in the, for example, in English, right. all right, but the type of conversations that lead people to need varied vocabulary, more colorful vocabulary, deeper vocabulary, literary vocabulary, scientific vocabulary, historical vocabulary. Now, go back to what I said to you before about where we are positioned. Sociologically, technologically, and educationally, we do not have a linguistic environment in this country that encourages that. No. In other words, basically, what Zimmerman and Brown are implying is the fact that in order to acquire a vocabulary, 
you need to have opportunity to discuss because that's where you gain your vocabulary. Now, when you want to talk about the link up between vocabulary and literacy, it's critical. What vocabulary does is it allows us to guess. Now, Tom, I, I, I'm just, I'm going to, I believe I put this in the article and I think it, it, it bears mentioning. Um, language is ambiguous at best. It's ambiguous. I mean, uh, it, it, it is clearly not adequate for human needs. Now, how do I know this? We have war, don't we? We have misunderstanding. We have random violence. We have domestic violence. We have all, if language were completely transparent, we would have none of these social ills. As it is, as ambiguous as it is, when, when you listen to the speaker, okay, as your, as your guests are right now, they're guessing at the meaning of what I'm saying. They're guessing at my intent. When you pick up a novel, you're guessing at the intent of the author. When you view a movie, you are guessing at the intent of the, of, the, of the director. And notice when I mentioned movies, listening, and I mentioned reading, those are all inputs. That's all input, okay? And so language at best is ambiguous, okay? And so when we read, when we listen, when we view, we're guessing. What helps you to guess successfully is vocabulary. And I, I would simply say to you that the most literate people in our society are, in fact, our best guessers. Primary example, Einstein. What book did he go to to read about E equals MC squared? Okay? He took a monumental guess that changed. What about Hawkins? His whole theory on, on Hawkins, on, 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 uh, on, uh, on black holes and so forth. Granted, there's backup knowledge, but eventually there is this monumental guess, and that comes from vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so literally what I'm saying to you is this, is that if we have problems, if we have problems, literacy problems across the curriculum, it's because we've abandoned language. If everyone, I said to you this before, Tom, and I'm very sincere about this, if everyone taught content, the way world language teachers teach, focusing on comprehensible input, we would reduce, if not eradicate, the literacy crisis that people sense exists in this country. So then basically a lot of the teachers need to be doing uh, more of this. Uh, they need to uh, come up with these uh, how to get, well, I guess the comprehensible input uh, to make themselves understood, they need to go a different way to do it, right? That's why we're saying. Absolutely. And, and, Absolutely. and I totally agree. And that would be, so stays teacher, English teacher, science teacher, right? They have to yeah. find ways that they're really going to be yeah. understood. And uh, that's the challenge, right? The, 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 the yeah. language by itself, the language by itself is not adequate. Yeah. Now, what could a school do to confirm or talk about a solution to this? What should the schoolhouse do to, to find a solution, you think? Well, uh, I think, first of all, they have to have a set of organizing principles. Huh? Uh, and then I'll, I'll give you some pointed suggestions. I think that, that I, have, I want to offer you 10 
uh, organizing principles for language acquisition and literacy. There has to be a tacit belief that language acquisition begins with comprehensible input. Secondly, comprehensible input, we have to believe it turns into output of language or conversation. Thirdly, most of the vocabulary we own comes from broad conversation and not reading. And it's important to note that vocabulary is always self-selected. We only select words we need, and that is normally due to situation and problem resolution. Number four, the amount of vocabulary we own ultimately determines literacy. Number five, language is ambiguous and often inadequate for human needs. Number six, successful reading is ultimately determined by comprehension of what is read, not simply decoding. Due to the ambiguity of language, we guess when we listen, read, and view. Number eight, vocabulary enables us to guess when we listen, read, and view. Number nine, abundant vocabulary enhances our ability to guess effectively. And number 10, the most literate people among us are the best guessers. What would I recommend to school district? I would recommend that first of all, the school district must confirm oral language as the foundation of literacy, oral language. We've got to reverse this trend this deafening silence that we're living in sociologically. Number two, the school district must confirm comprehensible input as the foundation of oral language. You have to have comprehensible input in order to create output of language. In search of literacy, each staff member in every content area has a responsibility to enhance oral language in the students. Everybody is developing language in kids, right? A rising tide raises all boats. Number four, a formal district-wide long-range initiative to enhance oral language should be made at all grade levels. This is what I'm going to be talking about for this county in Maryland coming up next week. Number five, formal comparative records should be maintained to underscore performance to see exactly what the difference is now that we're on more an oral language-based, comprehensible input-based uh, approach What's the difference between where we were and where we're going? What do we see, the differences in literacy? And number six, print and technological materials that do not impede oral language, do not impede oral language development should be given optimal consideration. Opportunities for discussion, opportunities for conversation, discussion, problem solving. Mm -hmm. These are all things, I go back to this point, these are all things that language teachers do if not intuitively, they do it because they actually have learned about it. Mm -hmm. This needs to be shed into the other curricular areas in the name of literacy. Mm -hmm. In the name of literacy. So if, 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 if we were reading uh, uh, a novel in English, uh, whatever, a novel by, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, what's a popular novel in the English classes that they always read. Uh, Could be just about anything. Yeah. So catching the rye. I don't yeah, catching the rye. So they're reading the novel, and what you're saying then is, after they read it four or five pages, maybe, you know, or discuss it. You discuss it, then you maybe get them in groups, and they're talking and blah, boom, 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 boom. Throw some themes at them, and and they, but they, they are hands on doing something, right? Am I right? Back it out. Yeah. They could act, act it, out. it out. Yes, act it out. Do a little. They could do video. They could take a picture with their iPhone, 
you know, and do a video, make a little movie about the thing, a little movie. But but what you're saying is, I think, it, that's what you're, you you would like to see happen, maybe. Is that right? Probably. That's why awesome. there's a, there are I mean, many, so, many things oh, you yeah. can do, but, but it has a lot to do. Yeah. It has to do with, with the type of questions you ask. If you just ask bulleted questions, like what, when, where, why, no, and how, that doesn't, right? that doesn't get it I, I'll give you an example. Uh, my French two class one year, we, we were doing Les Congés, The Stranger, mm-hmm. right? And we... We didn't even get by the first sentence before we had a big discussion because it begins, Aujourd'hui, maman est morte. C'était peut-être hier, right? Today, mom died, or maybe it was yesterday, mm-hmm. right? My first thing I did with the kids, and I did this in English to get them thinking about this, all right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? What, is, what do you think about this sentence? Today, mom died, or maybe it was yesterday. Who would say such a thing? What type of a person do you think we're going to find in this novel? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. And so you're trying to make the, the, the input comprehensible, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and so when it comes to reading, there are any number of things you can do to try to assure the kids understand. They can discuss it. They can write about it. They can act it out. A million different things. Yeah. You can ask people to draw pictures. Draw pictures yeah. of, or for example, you finish the chapter. What would you offer? What would you offer for a different ending of the chapter? Yeah, and you could throw some prizes out, or you know, who's going to be the writer of the week, the actor of the week, who's going to write, and, and and make them really enjoy it and have fun with it. That, and I think the fun thing you're you're bringing in here too. A lot of it is fun, like we do in world language classes. I think we have fun when we teach. You know, I think like world language teachers more than other teachers have fun when they teach. And right. I think that's why you find world language teachers that teach a long time. You know, they, they keep going because they love it and they have fun. And I think if the students, what you're, you're saying is totally true, it's, it's this idea of enjoyment. You know, let's have fun with this and learn while we're having fun. It doesn't have to be arduous and yeah. boring, you know, which is it, it many times becomes in situations. Uh, um, so it is an interesting. I, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, um, well, Tom, if we, if we, excuse me for a second, but if 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 we stop and consider, right? If there is, if there, well, excuse me, subjunctive. If there were, right, a literacy crisis in the United States, what are the causes? Right. Well, we always blame the kids. My observation is, looking at my own boys having grown up and their little children. They're, they're, they're born into this world. They have great language ability. Uh, they, uh, you know, I, I saw no deficiencies in them. I don't see deficiencies in the children today. In other words, I don't, I don't, I don't think that the kids are, are innately linguophobic no. at all, right? They certainly aren't, okay? So I don't think it's the kids' fault. And no. then, of course, the next, we always blame the teachers. My observation of teachers today is that we've got some of the best trained teachers we've ever had, and the credentialing process is tough. Right, right, right. So I don't believe that. We could also take time to blame the textbooks because, you know, textbooks can't defend themselves, so they're a perfect scapegoat. I know something about this, and I know the pains that the publishers take to try to create a great book. Correct. And so I don't buy into that. So what has happened? That's the question I ask myself. Over the 50, over the past 50 years, 40 years, 25 years, what has happened to move us in this direction to where we are now 
we now believe we have a literacy crisis. What has changed? And the only answer I come in, come up with, is the way we use and interface with language. We are, and, and it, has, it has a tremendous amount to do, particularly with technology, particularly sociologically, because of, of where we are right now with, with the way we live our lives, all right? And educationally, with the impact of high stakes testing. The nice thing, Tom, is that this can be reversed and you don't have to spend millions of dollars buying technology. You don't have to spend millions of dollars on textbooks. You just have to be aware that what's missing from the curriculum is language. Language, language, language. We need to do what we need to do to rejuvenate language in kids. Kindergarten, first and second grade are all pretty safe because the kids are pre-literate. Right. And, and right. they talk, that's their business. Starting third grade, you've heard this cliche before, we go from reading, learning to read, to reading to learn. Mm -hmm. And then increasingly as you go up the, the ladder, the classrooms fall increasingly in silence. We've got to maintain the momentum that we see at K1 and 2 with the risk taking, with the vulnerability, with the intuition, with the usage of language. Well said. Well said, John, and uh, I totally agree with you, and I, I wish you nothing but the best with this wonderful article and what you're going to be doing with it, and uh, I'm, we're very fortunate uh, to have you doing research and, and actually bringing things to life like you always do. Nobody can do it better, as I always tell John, and uh, we've been knowing each other for a long time, and I mean a long time. <laughs> It goes back a ways. Yeah, it was, it was a while back, but it, anyway. Uh, but uh, John really, really uh, does a wonderful job with everything he does. And we're so happy you've been on the show today and uh, uh, hope to see you soon. Uh, I don't know about Central States yet. I have not. I don't have that on my agenda at this point. I haven't. Uh, I usually go to it, but uh, uh, sometimes I go to it. And so I'm not, I haven't decided yet if I do it, it'd be a you know, spur of the moment thing, or I just might go over there and just walk around, and, you know, kind of hang out a little bit. But uh, uh, we really enjoy you and all you do for the profession and uh, can't thank you enough for all your work over the years. And uh, um, as I've told you many times, you're my favorite all-time person in world language education. And I know of nobody that knows as much as you do and does as much work as you do for the profession. So thank you so much for being on our show, and I hope to see you soon, right? Absolutely, Tom, and I'm honored and uh, that you would have me on your show, and I, I hope that your your listeners found it to be interesting. And uh, thanks, thanks an awful lot. Well, thank you for being on the show, and uh, for the listeners, uh, tune in to our next broadcast, and, we, and we'll have uh, John uh, online uh, very soon here, and uh, you'll be able to listen to this show uh, live, as live can be. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. We're closed with Alejandro Fernandez singing uh, Canta Corazon. Have a great week, everybody. Nos vemos. Bye.
eso, que ha pasado por su casa, que ha venido porque quiere ser feliz. 